Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Heather Hutchinson. She's a singer, songwriter, and author out of Vancouver who wrote uh, one of the Amazon's top-selling memoirs called Holding On by Letting Go. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Now, so tell us more about this, this memoir that you've written. I, I know it's, it revolves around you being born blind and in Latin America. Yeah, so I actually grew up in Canada and then moved to Latin America. So it kind of talks about the cultural differences between my life as a blind person here in Canada and in Latin America. And then kind of the parallel theme, I guess, of you know, how somebody can get to the point where they feel like they have no more, no other option um, than to take their own life and, and then how someone gets back from that point. So let's, let's backtrack a little bit, obviously, and, and that point where you wanted to end your life. Tell us more about your childhood and growing up, both parents at home, single parent, siblings. Um, my childhood was actually really normal up to a certain age. Um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer when I was three and he was in and out of remission a lot, um, throughout my childhood. And he left when I was six and then came back and then left again when I was 13. So it was kind of, you know, a little bit in flux. So was there sometimes when the parent leaves the house or there's a divorce in the family or separation, sometimes the, the child internalizes that and thinks that they are responsible for that. Were those some of the feelings that came up for you? I think so, um, especially in the way that, you know, having a child with a disability puts strain on families that they wouldn't normally have. So I guess... Yeah, in a way, I was aware of that strain and conscious of it. And, and it did kind of make me feel like, you know, maybe if that hadn't happened, things would have worked out differently for them. Right, because I'm sure you overheard arguments. Uh, for sure, yeah. Right. And what were some of the things that were brought up around you and, uh, you know, being blind? Um, there was a lot of advocacy that had to be done throughout my education. Um, it's actually, so I was mainstreamed, but to get the technology and the resources that I needed for school was very challenging. I often didn't have textbooks and, and I never had a calculator, things like that. Um, so my family was really involved in advocacy which I know put strain on, on my parents' relationship because they sort of felt like they were so tied up in this advocacy that they weren't really having a relationship for themselves. Uh, right. The, the advocacy created a distance and strain yes. on their intimacy. Mm -hmm. And it was, so is it genetic? Is, are there the other members of your family who experienced this also? No, it is genetic, but nobody in my family is a dominant carrier of it. 
so what is the gene or what do you know about the, the causes of the blindness? It's an eye disease called lever congenital amaurosis, and basically it affects the rods and cones of the eye. And is it something, is it, is it painful? Is there an experience? Is it, so is it 100% or there's blurred vision? To what no, extent? so it's, you know, a lot of people think blindness is all or nothing. It's more of a continuum. So the doctors classify my vision as light perception only, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, in low light, I actually see a lot better. I can see stark contrasts. Um, in really bright light, I'm pretty much effectively completely blind, but I am a braille reader and I do use a cane. So there's not really a whole lot of functional vision. So, yeah. So how were you learning if, if you, because you mentioned earlier that it was hard to get the resources you needed for education. What was education like for you early on? Were you, were you able to early on start to learn braille reading or? Did he just have you sitting in class and hoping that you'd absorb it? I did have actually in my early education some really amazing supports. It was more the people that really stepped up rather than, you know, actual government resources. And I actually learned um, Braille from an EA, educational assistant, who was taking the Braille course at the same time as me. So she would be like one lesson ahead of me. And um, so she just kind of hoped that I would overtake her. Um, so yeah, that's how I learned Braille. I didn't actually learn Braille from a teacher, but I was really motivated. I always really enjoyed reading. So that really helped, you know, to have that motivation um, to really put in the, the effort to learn to read despite lack of access to information and braille books and things like that. Yeah, because you're also feeling like your life is dependent on it. Like your your life is is like on the line here in terms of learning how to read and learning how to navigate the world uh, in, in some type of literary sense. Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately, the literacy rate among blind people is quite low. I don't know the exact statistic, but it's not the best, which is you know, troubling because it affects everything, right? Like you're going on to university, um, employment opportunities. So it really is so important that we are teaching blind children how to read at an early age. And, you know, one of the things that we, I remember growing up and there'd be moments where, you know, they would have us uh, practice walking around with a blindfold on to know what it's like <laughs> to be blind. And, and I, I could tell from the giggle, like, I, I realize it's insulting because <laughs> there is a difference between, like, just being blinded yes. out, of the, out, of, out of nowhere and being born, you know, uh, blind. Uh, can you speak to that? And how do you feel about those um, experiments that sometimes are done in school? Or Yeah, you totally nailed it. Um, there's a lot of that sort of thing. I've I think in Vancouver, actually, even there's a restaurant where people go and it's completely dark and they try to eat this meal in the dark. And I think, unfortunately, it creates more anxiety around being blind and blind people than it actually serves to educate because 
you know, you are suddenly thrust into this darkness. You don't have the skills that somebody who was born blind will have learned after years and years and years of trial and error. So of course it's going to be scary for somebody who just all of a sudden is blind. And it's just a really poor representation of what our lives are actually like. Yeah, you know, and in an educational system, I remember we had a kid um, in my high school who had polio. And, you know, I, I don't know what his 24-7 experience was like, but he seemed well adapted. No, none of us, like we had a group of friends and none of us ever mentioned him walking with the cane or anything like that. Did you have, did you feel like you had friends or was there any bullying or uh, what was your experience like uh you know, with other students and other kids of your, your age growing up? I was lucky. I had a really good group of friends. I think when you're really young, kids don't even notice, right? Like they're pretty self-absorbed and the world hasn't really taught them yet to fear differences. So my friends were, were really good. I had kind of a core group of friends throughout elementary school, junior high, high school. There was bullying for sure. I remember the first time I actually really realized that I was different, I was, or that I would be seen as different kind of by the world, I was five. And I had been playing on the playground with this kid who was a couple years older than me. We'd been playing all afternoon. And he asked me, why do you never look at anything? And I told him I'm blind, you know, like super matter of fact, because nobody really thought anything of it at that point. And his reaction was just so swift. We were standing at the top of the slide and he pushed me backwards. So I fell and he went down. I yelled some insults over his shoulder about me being blind and then got on his bike and, and rode away. And it was kind of like the first, like, I got, I remember laying there going, you know, I'm different and different is clearly bad. And, you know, this is forever. But so, yeah, there was definitely bullying that went on, you know, from that part on in school. But I did have a really good core group of friends. And and I would assume that, you know, you guys did all the same things and, you know, you ran around, you played. It, it Was there anything that stood out to you from that friendship that you were like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much like all the other kids? Yeah, for sure. I think I was a little bit sensitive to it as we got older in that sometimes I felt like I might be slowing down my friends and none of my close friends ever mentioned it to me, but I was concerned and it did create some some anxiety for me around, you know, would they rather me not be there? Am I slowing them down too much? Like we'd go to an amusement park or something and they'd all be like running around taking the stairs and and I'd be like a little bit slower behind them. And inevitably, one of my close friends would stay behind with me and kind of ignore their urge to ride, to run, a, run ahead and ride all the rides that they could. And so that that was a little bit concerning for me that, you know, maybe they would prefer not to. Yeah. So you, it sounds like you felt like a burden kind of to your friends but, and also to your family. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. What was your outlet for managing those emotions? Was it, were there school resources like a therapist or counselor that you could talk to? Yeah. 
When I was in junior high, I had regular meetings with the school's guidance counselor. And then I was referred to a social worker for some of the challenges that I was having at home. And I did have a psychologist as well at that point. So, yeah, there was definitely resources. And what kind of skills or how did they help you navigate, you know, through that mentally? Were there any reframes? Were there any skills, any practices, journaling? What, uh, you know, what what kind of tools did they give you? Yeah, journaling was a big one. Um, just sort of, you know, resilience, like really trying to reframe, you know, how I was feeling about things. Um, CBT, of course, was a big one. Can you give us some examples, like uh, like how you were thinking about things and how they helped you reframe it? Mm, let's see. Something like oh, I'm going to go into the school cafeteria or some public place and everyone's going to be staring at me and judging me and I'm going to do something stupid and everyone's going to laugh. You know, you reshape that to, okay, is that completely rational or is that me projecting when maybe a more realistic approach is that people are generally good and they want to see the good in others? Oh, I love that. So the the cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, resilience, mm-hmm. journaling. Did they have you journal anything specific? Were there any specific journaling techniques they asked you to incorporate? Not really. No, I started journaling really ever since I could write. Like I remember being like six years old and starting a journal and it was like daily for the vast majority of my life. So it wasn't really like this big homework assignment that they had me do because I was already doing it. So what is, in terms of journaling, what did that look like for you? Uh, Were you typing it? Was it, was it talk to text? Initially it was Braille on like this really old school, um, they call it a Perkins Brailler. It kind of looks like a super old school typewriter, but like with six keys. And then I moved to, in junior high, I moved to a laptop. And yeah, so from then, it was more text journaling, just typed on a computer. So at at what point are the thoughts of wanting to end your life seeping in? Well, when I was 12, I lost someone to suicide. And... I remember a lot of the adults around, you know, it was kind of kept quiet how she died. And there was this undercurrent of like, oh, my God, how could she do that? You know, how horrible, you know, think of her, her poor family. And I looked at it at 12 years old and I started thinking to myself, you know, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Maybe what she did actually made a whole lot of sense because who wouldn't plan their own exit if life got to be too much? And I I kind of admired her decision. And I guess I really, from there, started thinking and considering it more and more. So we're having these thoughts. You're admiring her decision of like, wow, the pain is too much you made a decision on on how you wanted to end this and and nobody else is talking about it 
talks, right? This is what we do around suicide is Mm -hmm. no one talks about it. And so you're just left to your own thoughts and your own ideas and, and, and fascinations. Um, Yeah. And, and so what happens after that? What are the, what are your next steps? Well, so that was 12 at 13. My dad left again at 14. I decided that I was going to have no more contact with him. He had partial custody of my brother and I, but I actually moved out out of his house and refused to see him, um, which also meant that I lost contact with most of my extended family who I'd seen kind of every week since I was born. And the bullying at school had gotten pretty bad by that point because that was, you know, junior high or middle school, whatever you call it there, middle school, I think. Um, And it just kind of, you know, I was feeling really alone and I had really struggled with anxiety since I was really young. And I just got really sick of feeling sick all the time and scared all the time. And so that led led to depression, and the depression led to, well, why don't I end my life? And so let me get this right: you you lost your friend at twelve. Yes. Your dad leaves when you're thirteen, and then you moved out the house when you were thirteen. Out of his house, yes. Out of his house, and so where did you live? So I was staying with my mom full time. And so I'm assuming that if you were living with your dad, you didn't want to live with your mom either initially. Well, they had split custody initially. So I was spending, you know, whatever it was, a week there, a week there, weekends in different places. And you said that the bullying in junior high got worse. How, how was it different than the early experience that you reported? I think early on in elementary school, the games were a little bit more innocent. Like people would come up and be like, oh, guess who I am? Or how many fingers am I holding up? Just kind of like annoying things, but not really super hurtful. And then by junior high, they would, you know, the bullying got a lot more physical. They would, you know, kick me. They would steal my cane um, to see how I could manage without it. They would tell my they would tell me I should kill myself because I was useless, so things like that. So you know you're being told these things and and more and more you start thinking, well, maybe they have a point so there's how do you say this? Uh, there's discontent in the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, school is doesn't feel like a safe place anymore. And if people are telling you that you're useless and, and there's physical bullying, where do you navigate from there? In what, in what way? In, in terms of, uh, you're, you know, you're going from your, you went from your dad's to your mom's house. And I, I guess psychologically, emotionally, like, cause obviously like you, you're having these thoughts, like you said, of wanting to end your life and you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Where, what are the steps that you take after that? Because you, you mentioned earlier about therapy and, and things like that. What, what did you anchor on to? What kept you going? I think therapy, uh, the social worker I was seeing was really great. And music was a huge one. I started 
getting seriously into music around that time. That was kind of really my outlet. I started writing songs and then I actually met my producer when I was 15 and we actually started recording my first album when I was 15. So that was really like, it gave me something, it gave me a purpose, it gave me something to focus on despite bad I was feeling all the time. I love that. You know, in Thomas Joyner's book, uh, I think it's called Why People Kill Themselves or In Their Lives. He, he whittles it down to two things, purpose and people. Like yes. we, we need to feel connected to a purpose and we need to feel connected to people or at least an idea mm-hmm. of, of people. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah. So when I started recording music, I was actually getting that connection to people because I was meeting all these really incredible. It, it was so crazy because it was like, you know, one day I was playing music with my friends in the band room in high school. And the next day I'm in a professional recording studio working with professional musicians. And it was like the group that I was surrounded by were just so encouraging. So, you know, they treated me as an equal, like I mattered. And that was something I really, really needed at that point. Are you dating at any point along this journey? Yeah, yeah. I had boyfriends, for sure. And uh, were they also blind or they were both? No, I've actually never dated a blind person. Wow. Um, so you got your, the music career starting to take off. You record your first album. Did, now, did you record it at the age of 15? Yeah. So it came out when I was 16. Wow. Okay. So we have an album out when we're 16. We're finding purpose. We're finding people. Is your relationship, how old are you now? Now? 33. 33. So how has your relationship with your parents evolved over time? You know, it's interesting. I would say that COVID, of all things, kind of really helped us find that connection again and in a way my book as well so i would say my relationship with my parents right now is better than it has been really since i was a kid and what do you think you said because of covid in what way did covid help is it because you're spending more time together or what do you think was happening there No, so my parents both live far away, but there was this whole, you know, kind of shift to online and people were reaching out, I think, in ways that they wouldn't normally because everyone's feeling the isolation. So, you know, my parents, my dad would start calling me to check in and we didn't really talk a lot before that, but all of a sudden he's calling me like fairly regularly and you actually start having conversations because, you know, when you're talking to somebody often enough, you, you start actually talking to them, you know, beyond just the weather and stuff. So we were actually able to forge a connection and sort of get back some of that relationship that, that we lost when I was really pretty young. Are there things that you've learned about your father that helped you have a bit more compassion for what you're experiencing growing up? 
Yeah, that's actually a really good question because yes, absolutely. I think going through my own mental health struggles and the perspective of being somebody older now, I'm not a kid, you know, you don't just see things from your own perspective. It makes it easier, I suppose, to understand why the things happened the way they did and and have compassion for for somebody who is obviously really having their own struggles. Yeah, because cancer is such a, uh, I don't even know what kind of cancer he had, but I imagine it was costly, it's time consuming, uh, and just quite emotionally draining. Is he, uh, um, is he, is his can? I would assume his cancer is in remission. Has it been cured or what kind of cancer was it? Um, I believe it's in remission now, but it was a struggle for a lot of years. He was diagnosed when I was three, and then it was just kind of on and off and on and off. Um, actually, right after I left his house, he got um, he was came out of remission, which was like a huge guilt thing for me, as because you know you're a teenager, you're pretty self-absorbed, and it's like, oh my god, like did I cause this? Yeah, it's it's interesting how much we we think we um, have an impact on people, and then <laughs> at the same time feel like we have no impact at all. Yes, like, yeah. Like we're like we're causing all the harm in the world, but we we that we don't bring any joy to the world. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's very true. Were there things about your mom and uh, how she in in turn? Let me rephrase the question. Were the things about your mom that came up that had sh shed some light on what you're experiencing growing up also? Yeah, I think for both of my parents, I think at the time, it's very easy. And I think we're conditioned as kids to see, you know, bad guys and good guys. Like we learned that so young, right? So I think I maybe vilified my dad without really seeing the bigger picture and you know kind of understanding as i got older that there is no black and white you know most people aren't all good or all evil we're all just kind of wounded people trying to do trying to deal with our demons in the in the best way we know how it's so much fun though to vilify people <laughs> it is it's very satisfying I mean, it's it's in all the movies. You're yeah, exactly. Or you're against me, and we just tend to think that that's a, a a healthy way of viewing the world. And we 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 learn, hopefully, throughout our journey that uh, it does us more harm than good. Yeah, exactly. We're holding on to it. They don't know we're holding on to it. We're just repeatedly hurting ourselves. So you know, forgiveness isn't really about them. It's about freeing ourselves. Can you speak more to that? Because I, I, I know so many people who are listening right now are having such a hard time forgiving uh, people in their lives or even forgiving themselves. Are there, are there ways in which you've had to forgive yourself? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess especially actually fairly recently, just with my mental health struggles, knowing what I put my loved ones through 
um, was very challenging for me to accept. And, you know, you already feel so badly about yourself. And then you have this added guilt of, well, I'm doing this to everybody else. Look what they're going through because of me. And that's not helpful for anybody either. So it was actually kind of in the hospital when one of the psychiatrists mentioned, you know, a lot of what you're going through does have a genetic component. And it was kind of at that point that that I was able to let go a little bit of that guilt and stop seeing it as all my fault and that I was doing this all to everybody else. And I guess have a little bit more compassion for myself at the same time. It's easy to think that uh, because you're blind, that that's your biggest problem, your biggest <laughs> yeah. issue. What would you say is your biggest challenge right now? My biggest challenge, I think you're so right. Everyone focuses on the blindness because it's the thing that they can see, right? They don't see, you know, the other environmental risk factors um, of growing up, you know, exposed to mental illness, which was obviously very difficult. Um, the bullying, you know, experiencing sexual violence, all these kind of you know, factors that play into everything, but nobody sees that part and they just focus on, well, I mean, you're blind, of course, you're depressed. Do you have a daily practice? Because I would imagine going through those different experiences of trauma, uh, images, sensations, things come back up for you yes. at random times. Two questions. One is, do you have a daily practice that kind of grounds you and centers you? And then the second question is, do you have strategies for those moments where the, the trauma does flare up? Yeah. So question one, daily practice. I, I'm not perfect at this, but I try to meditate every day um, for, you know, five minutes or whatever on Insight Timer or Calm. You know, there's quite a few apps. And then mindfulness practice. I like the one, I don't know if you've heard of it, where you're sitting on like a riverbank and you're the only one there and you have your hand kind of in the water and the leaves are, are going by. I don't know if you've heard of this one. Oh, yeah. I pee myself every time I listen to that. One. <laughs> it's not the best. And, you know, you, you either grab the leaf as, as it goes by because the leaves are your thoughts or you let it go. Um, so, yeah, I, those are kind of like the the mindfulness meditation things. And then question two, I think the most important thing is to take hold of those thoughts before I'm completely mired in them because, you know, it gets to a point where you've gone so far down the spiral that you can't pull yourself back up at that point. So if you can recognize, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going back to this place of, of trauma. I'm reliving these memories. If you can get on top of it really quick, then, you know, distraction, meditation, go for a walk, in my case, play some music, journaling, all that kind of thing. But I think the key is you catch it as soon as you possibly can. And that takes practice. It does take practice. It's so interesting because when we, 
you know, at least for me, when I go down these wormholes uh, and I'm ruminating or overly obsessing over a thing, um, I just kind of go with it and let it, I let myself, you know, go deeper and deeper and, and it's, it becomes harder and harder to pull yourself out. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it is like, well, if I'm thinking this, then I must want to think it. When, like you said, it takes, it's a muscle of recognizing when you're going down that rabbit hole and then pulling yourself out. And then it becomes easier to pull yourself out. And then you're going down fewer and fewer rabbit holes over time, yeah. ideally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Were there any meds uh, prescribed to you at any point? Yeah, I've been on and off antidepressants since, um, I guess, my second year, I think, of university. Um, but my, I was actually studying in a different province, and my doctor was in my home province. So I never really had any kind of follow-up to see how it was working. So I actually quit cold turkey, which I know is terrible because I wanted to go out and party with my friends. Um, not the best. So then I came back to it a few years later, um, a much more systematic approach with a doctor who did do a lot of, still does do a lot of follow-up. And, you know, it's a constant kind of revision, I guess, of, especially when you're using multiple meds at once, I think it's a lot of trial and error and what works for me right now might not work for me in, in you know, a couple months. So I think it's really important to have when we are on those kind of psychiatric meds, um, that follow-up is so critical. So critical. Absolutely. Is there, Heather, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you love to share from your, your journey and your experiences? Hmm. I guess that's a hard one. If you're feeling like, you know, you don't want to do this anymore, I think it's so important to remember that there have been others who have come before you who feel that way. You know, we may not talk about, because we kind of focus on recovery, right? So we may not talk about those dark places. And I think that can make people feel really alone, but you're not alone in in those places, in those times. And I think that, you know, I'm not going to say a bunch of empty platitudes like, oh, tomorrow's a better day, cheer up, it'll get better. Because when I was going through it, that was, you know, about the time I would completely stop listening. But I can promise you that there will come a day when you will stop in a moment and you'll feel such profound joy and you'll you'll stop and you'll think to yourself, I would have missed this. And I hope with all my heart that you will hang on for that day. Uh, last two questions. Actually, I have three questions left. One is, um, you know, we watched this movie called Sound of Metal. And mm-hmm. uh, it's about a drummer who loses his hearing. And then he has the opportunity to uh, go th- undergo a surgery, which will, would allow him to hear. Would you do the same thing for vision or are you at a place now where it's not a thing that you're looking to correct? That's a good question. And there are some upcoming treatments that may be available in the next few years. (laughs) They're very expensive, which is, you know, obviously one factor. I think I would 
but not for the reasons that people think. Like everybody thinks, oh, you know, how great would it be if you could see the sunset or your loved one's faces? For me, it's more of like a practical thing. Like, cool, I could drive a car. Um, it would be easier. You know, I wouldn't have to feel stupid questions from people who sit down on the bus next to me and, you know, want to ask my entire medical history, things like that. So, and, and, you know, just that lack of like discrimination that would come from having my site that would make my life easier. The independence is mm -hmm, what yeah. you're opting in for, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, and I know that you're an avid reader. Uh, is there a book that you have reread or would recommend just because you love it? Just, you know, no, like not because it's a mental health book, but just a book you really savored and enjoyed. Hmm. Like mental health specifically or? No, it could be any book. So, you know, I read somewhere that all books are self-help books. So, <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah, that's that. true. I get something out of any book that I read. I wouldn't say like there's one specific book that I absolutely would recommend everyone reads. I think more broadly for me, I really find memoirs a lot more helpful than than actual self-help books um, because you're actually seeing these people's stories and you know how they evolved and things. To me, it's a lot more real than just you know some doctor telling you that these are the things that you should do completely agreed and you know it's so funny because i have not read a lot of memoirs i i find bios to be more helpful than self-help books mm -hmm. but i never realized like how much more helpful a, a memoir is also is i mean you're basically it feels like you're reading someone's journal yeah yeah exactly like i one comes to mind being a kid in Angela's ashes and that one like stuck in my head I think of it still now and just you know it really shows the pain and the journey that people go on instead of this clinical like you know well this is the step you take now and this is the step that you take now no it's more like you know this is my journey and I'm putting it out there and I hope that that it'll help people are you a part of any groups just uh, in general, just general, like, um, whether it's for work or band or, uh, you know, like self-help or any, any type of, you know, groups or organizations? Not really. I'm actually on a waiting list to get into group therapy, which I don't, <laughs> I'm not really sure how I feel about that one. Um, in terms of music, COVID kind of killed that, unfortunately. I'm definitely looking at getting back into groups and bands and things like that, which would be great because, you know, as we talked about earlier, we need that connection and that purpose. Absolutely. Heather, last question, because I always imagine that there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. And y'all, you did kind of answer this uh, earlier. But in case you had uh, future thoughts, what would you say to them? I would say that, you know, you might not feel like there's anyone out there who cares. But I can tell you with 100% certainty that that is absolutely not true. And that 
you know, have, having been on both sides of it, you know, losing somebody to suicide and being suicidal myself, I can tell you when they say, you know, that common refrain about when somebody dies by suicide, their pain isn't lost, it's just transferred onto the other people left behind. I can tell you that's absolutely 100% true. And there are people who care and that would miss you. And, and I just really hope that you will hold on because tomorrow might not be a better day, but one day you're going to have your first day where you take your first steps into recovery. I love that. One day will be your first day. Thank you so much, Heather Hutchinson. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or any of the other uh, phone numbers listed in the show notes, whether you're in Sri Lanka or Latin America or Canada, there are international suicide hotline numbers available for you. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Heather. Thank you.